0: Off of them. I've seen people do it. A whole families dressed in their Sunday best, helping themselves to hash browns and pancakes right off the pristine asphalt. And down where I live, in the Bone and Crystal District, it's a different story. People eat off the streets here too, but it's like carrion pecking at a roadkill. It ain't sanitary and it ain't pretty. Once, a funeral procession got lost and wound its way through my neighborhood. And by the time the hearse reached the cemetery, it was missing its license plate, its hubcaps, and its freshly embalmed corpse. And the city had to erect enormous orange signs that said, Welcome to Boning Gristle, so people would know to make an immediate U-turn and burn rubber to safety, which is why our borders are garishly modeled with tire marks. Occasionally, some hotshot politician gets elected and promises to clean up Bone and Gristle for good. But all they ever do is put up signs that say, "This area is protected by a neighborhood crime watch," and you can hear a laughter ring from every street corner in town, like a concerto for voice and hyena. Now, in my youth, I fell in with a bad element, stealing the orange welcome signs and skinning live cats. But these days, I'm a behind the wheel instructor and I get to share a braking system with the sons and daughters of respectability. I take a series of three buses to work suburban Pheasant Bluff, and as I move away from Bone and Gristle, the buses get nicer and nicer until I eventually find myself seated on velvet with a string quartet, playing Brahms, and a shower of confetti whenever I request a stop. Contractually I'm prohibited from taking the kids within a one mile radius of my home, on account of the hookers and crackheads and corpse thieves, but that's perfectly fine by me and instead we drive through Pheasant Bluff and Promontory Point, and I gaze out the window at manicured lawns and gorgeous dog-walking housewives, and occasionally apply pressure to the extra set of brakes. On Sundays, while the kids in Bone and Gristle snort paint chips and misspell curse words on private property, I take my students to Jesus Town, and we parallel park and make three-point turns as the church bells play Ave Maria, and for a brief moment, I think, yes, God is a good and awesome God, and his love springs eternal for all of creation. But then it's three progressively dingier buses back to bone and gristle, and my heart sinks. And God is a crummy landlord, neglecting to fix my plumbing, and banging on my door for the rent. One time, I had a student from Jesus Town, and he was the worst driver I've ever seen. He'd brake without warning, impulsively swerve into median strips. Every lesson was like an episode of Dukes of Hazzard, except the girls were a lot less attractive. He lived in a palatial mansion with an orange grove and a swimming pool, and to cheerful loving parents, but the kid was unrelentingly miserable because he thought God was punishing him for some perceived slight, making him cut off cop cars and turn left on red, until he resumed the path toward righteousness. I did my best to encourage him, said, keep reaching for that rainbow, and seventh time's a charm. But every driver's test, he'd just run red lights and make illegal turns and back over people's dogs, all the while crying and begging for God's forgiveness. Since my 75 Nova got stolen by tow truck pirates in the spring, I've been doing my errands during lesson time, and when the students get tired of idling the car in the parking lot, I let them accompany me to the bank or the supermarket. These upper tax bracket kids are sharp. They know all about IRAs and CDs and money markets, whereas when I was their age, all I knew was that anyone who had money had probably stolen it. When the weather's nice, I take them to a swimming pool or the beach and we roll out towels, dab on some copper tone, and discuss the right-of-way and the rejuvenating warmth of the sun until lesson time is over and they return to their gardens of Eden. The kids are usually from the same neighborhoods we drive through, Pheasant Bluff, Ivy Square, Secluded Woodland Springs, but I don't hold it against them that they've never dumpster-dived or applied for food stamps or fathered a stillborn child. I stopped being bitter long ago, stopped burdening my sick, heavy heart with resentment, so now I can ride with the kids past the gates of domestic paradise and gaze at their majestic homes not with jealousy, but with awe and childlike wonder. Even though my nights may be spent in the jaws of vice and squalor, my days are a window into another, better life. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Of course, as much as I enjoy the escape into luxury, the most rewarding part of my job is when I see one of my ex-students driving his own personal car, license, and wallet, enjoying the freedoms and privileges of youth. I tap my horn, and sometimes he taps back, but if I'm ignored, it's no big deal. I still point him out to my students and say, Kids, one glorious day, that will be you. And every now and then, I see that kid from Jesus Town, unlicensed and brooding, walking his city's immaculate streets. And I want to take him on the three buses to Bone and Gristle and say, Hey, kid, I can drive, and look where it got me. this so great? Is this worth crying to God over? But I never do. I let my students take the wheel, and I lean back and gaze at the beautiful mansions of Jesus Town, passing slowly before my eyes as we coast down the clean, pancake-cooking streets to nowhere in particular, until I say, take us home, and the lesson for today is over.
1: I'll be the bird, and I'll be the elephant. You beat the drum that gets me to go. Keeping it firm and keeping it relevant, much like the life in the water in Harlem. Ho-
0: and unlaces the same pair of hiking boots over and over, seven times and counting. I mentally clock him at five minutes a cycle, which means another ten minutes before my break. Except, sometimes, McLean, the manager, takes his sweet time with the buzzer, and we're stuck on the white pedestals, frozen in polo shirts and cashmere sweaters with exaggerated plastic smiles. Look how happy I am in this cardigan and searing joint pain. But, what can you do? You leave the pedestal early, and you're fired. Simple as that. Gary finishes another boot, and I restart the clock. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. I've worked at Wimble's for two years. I started at customer service, but after consistently low marks for attitude and attentiveness, they switched me to mannequin. Let's face it, Fitch, you're not a people person, said McLean. You'll be happier as a mannequin. The customers will be happier. Everyone wins. Supposedly, Wimbles was a classy place in the 60s, the trademark human mannequins drawing tourists from all over the Midwest, but these days, we're lucky if we sell a pair of shoelaces. Despite the store's decline, the mannequins remain, the sad reminder of a past no longer relevant, Like a caveman frozen inside a glacier, or a small vestigial tail. A couple punk kids saunter to my frame of vision and tease me, adopting my chic hand on hip pose and wide, ludicrous smile. These little jokers think they're clever, making fun of the dumb, dopey mannequin, but just wait until they stumble into the working week with no marketable skills and no health insurance. I was allowed to talk. I'd inform them of my comprehensive medical plan, my paid vacation, my salary incentives. I'd inform them that, in this town, mannequins the best job they're gonna get. But talking is three demerits, so I just keep smiling and counting. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. Our break times are staggered, so when McLean sounds the buzzer, only one of us comes to life. There are four distinct buzzer sounds to signify whose break it is. Mine sounds like an electronic parakeet. I shake my arms and legs to release the pent-up stiffness An hourly hokey-pokey in the latest fall fashions. I wearily step off the pedestal and glance at the other mannequins, Heather in a hooded sweatshirt. Carla in a cotton halter top. Steve in an Adidas tracksuit. I know what they're thinking. Lucky bastard. But they have to keep smiling. Klain watches the mannequin cam, like a hawk. During breaks, I head over to customer service, where Janine gives me a back massage if there are no customers to service. Luckily for me, there are rarely customers to service. So did you hear about Heather, says Janine, needing my shoulders. Gary says he heard her crying in the changing room again. Heather is the weak link in Team Mannequin. She never joins us at the village bar after work for drinks and hamburgers. She never talks during the team-building exercises. She never enters the sack race at the company picnic. She just stands still when she's supposed to stand still and goes home. That girl, I say, gets more unhinged every day. I need to switch outfits before my fifteen minutes are up, so I leave Janine's able hands for the changing room, before the next buzzer sounds. Tardiness is three demerits, McLean is a stickler for punctuality. On the way, I consult today's pose book. It shows, in diagram form, the pre-designated poses I am to assume throughout the day. Eleven o'clock is The Thinker, chin rested on hand brow furrowed in deep contemplation. I am pondering life's great mysteries in clearance-rack khakis and a cashmere sweater. This is Steve's buzzer. I can't see Steve because my vision is limited to women's handbags, but I know he will spend his breakout back smoking a doobie by the dumpster we share with Davy's pets. This is how he deals with the joint pain. Before returning to the pedestal, he stops by perfume and spritzes a healthy dose of free samples on his clothes to mask the smell of pot. McLean's none the wiser. His eyes are sharp, but his sense of smell isn't too good. In women's handbags, I can see Carla, posed with a titanium tennis racket overhead. Mid-swing, as if executing a kick serve. Her paralyzed smile is infectious and winning, but her arm must be killing her. Carla has an ex-boyfriend named Stu who often comes to Wimbles with his buddies to taunt her. They call her awful names and make obscene hand gestures, laughing and whooping like punch drunk hyenas, but she keeps smiling. Under no circumstances is she to move a muscle. The employee handbook is very clear on this. On the way out, Stew and the boys always buy strands of lottery tickets and Camel cigarettes, and McLean says, Y'all come back now, as if we were in Texas instead of Iowa. Carla complained to McLean once about Stew during team building, but he merely shrugged his shoulders and said, Hell, Carla, those boys are the only regular customers we got. You gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. So, right now, Carla's on the pedestal, playing petrified tennis, wondering if Stu will come in today. A small child poses at the base of the pedestal, her arm raised like Carla's, and the mother snaps a picture. How precious, says the mother. Carla probably did the same thing when she was a kid. There are likely framed pictures on her parents' walls of little Carla mimicking the Wimble's mannequins, cherub-faced and chubby-cheeked. Who would have guessed that she herself would spend her adult life plastic motionless. Life is full of surprises. This is Heather's buzzer. What she does during break, no one knows. We think McLean is close to letting Heather go. She's putting on some weight. She is no longer asked to do lingerie, which pays time and a half, and is unable to model the latest styles of tight-fitting jeans. Children rarely pose for pictures with her. Stu and the boys never stop to ogle her. She is a strain on customer confidence. She is a strain on morale. When we eat at the Village Bar after work, we don't talk about the punk kids or the joint pain or Stu and his obscene hand gestures. We talk about Heather. Steve thinks she might be a closet homosexual. Gary speculates about an eating disorder. Carla says she's just let herself go. In team building, McLean talks about the power of positive thinking, and sure, it's not all sunshine and rainbows when you're on the white pedestal, but you can at least make an effort. So what if your old friends ignore you? So what if the punk kids pepper you with hog calls? We make decent money. All in all, things could be a lot worse. You gotta break a few eggs to make an omelette. From the entrance, I hear hooting and hollering, which, at Wimble's, means one thing. stewing the boys. Carla hears it too. She still smiles, still keeps her racket raised, but her eyes do this little shake back and forth, like a struck-tuning fork. Her pupils dilate. Her arm hairs are the rising quills of porcupine. Stu staggers into woman's handbags, and it's obvious he's been drinking. His buddies circle like scavengers, punch truck hyenas, slapping each other on the back and laughing at nothing particular. "'Look at you,' says Stu. "'Look at you, girl.' Want to play some tennis? Let's play some tennis. Stu lobs an imaginary tennis ball at Carla's racket. His buddies whistle and whoop, clutching their sides in convulsions of laughter. On the mannequin cam, it must look like a grand old time in women's handbags. What's the matter, says Stu. Don't you want to play? Carla doesn't answer. Her eyes just shake and shake and shake. Stu draws within inches of Carla's face. Even on the pedestal, she is shorter than he is. He exhales deeply, lets her smell the stink of alcohol on his breath. He pantomimes a blowjob, his jerking hand almost brushing her lips, and the boys exchange yelps and high-fives. Carla's eyes go blurry with moisture and tears flow down her cheeks, dropping into the corners of her wide, impossible smile. She blinks rapidly. Fighting her tears, but her smile never wanes. She's a trooper. A professional. It's no wonder she is a three-time employee of the month. You like that, don't you, baby? Says Stu, staring into her quivering eyes. Huh, baby doll. Baby, baby doll. Leave her alone. It's Heather, back from break. Usually she hides in the changing room whenever Stu's around, but... Here she is, in women's handbags, fists clenched, teeth bared, defiant. Whoa now, honey, says Stu. Whoa now. You either leave immediately or I'm calling security, says Heather, grabbing the red phone attached to a wall support. I'm dialing right now. All right, he says, holding up his hands like a bank teller during a robbery. Come on, boys, let's go. Stu and the boys leave my frame of vision, and as Heather fumes with the red phone in her shaking hand, I hear their receding footsteps, the ding of the cash register, and McLean's familiar farewell, y'all come back now. Carla's buzzer. The tennis racket falls from her hands and clangs against the linoleum floor with a harsh sound like malfunctioning machinery. Her smile shrinks to a grimace of embarrassment as passing shoppers search for the source of the noise, and she frantically wipes her face before they notice her tears. There, there, says Heather, helping her to the ground. There, there. I'm okay, says Carla, now even more embarrassed. Please, just go, go back to your pedestal. Heather doesn't budge. She wraps her arms around Carla's body. She strokes her hair. She whispers, they're there. If she knows what's good for her, she'll assume her pose before McLean catches her. Tardiness is three demerits. The employee handbook is very clear on this. What are you doing? says Carla. The customers are watching. Heather has finally gone off the deep end. What does she think this little stunt will accomplish? Stu will come back tomorrow. If anything, she's encouraging him. Carla can take care of herself. She is a professional. She is a team player. You are beautiful and strong, says Heather, rubbing Carla's back. There is a world out there, a world not so mean and ugly. A4, three demerits, says McLean over the intercom. Carla struggles to break free, but Heather is too powerful. She grabs Carla's hand and guides it to her midsection, lifting up her sweatshirt to reveal a slightly swollen belly. Here, she says, can you feel it? Carla struggles for a few seconds, then stops. She does feel something. Heather releases her hand, which lingers on the exposed belly, rising and falling, rising and falling. Carla leans over, pressing her ear next to her hand, and listens. A small crowd forms in the aisle, small children and their mothers, one mother takes out her camera. Carla looks up at Heather and is bathed with a bright white flash. I can feel it, she says. A4, code Pensacola, says McLean for the intercom. Gary arrives in women's handbags and gently leads Heather away from Carla, presumably to the back room, to fill out the necessary paperwork. Pensacola means she is terminated. It means she is a goner. McLean appears with a temporary plastic mannequin storage, which will stand on Heather's pedestal until a new mannequin is hired. This should only take a few days. No one is likely to notice the difference. The crowd disperses, and Carla remains in the aisle, a dazed look on her face. She picks up the fallen racket, studies it, feels its weight, then raises it above her head, and swings, finally completing her serve. A smile forms on her lips, a real smile, and she looks right at me. I can only stare back, pensively, at the thinker and wait for the buzzer. What else could I possibly do? Carla disappears, and I'm left with the purses, the tote bags, the satchels, and the empty white pedestal the shiny linoleum floor, I can see the reflection of a ceiling fan. I study the fan, clock it at two revolutions a second, and start counting. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. me a birthday party. She gathers the neighborhood children, women from her church group, occasionally the mailman, and they decorate the house with crepe paper and recycled balloons and pitch in for a cake from Dairy Queen, adorned with an impressive but inaccurate number of candles. For presents, a mother wraps the kitchen appliances and newspaper from a recycling bin, and everyone laughs and applauds as I tear off the classifieds, the obituaries and say, an electric can opener, just what I've always wanted, and then we sing and pose for pictures and eat the cake. Of course, it's not my actual birthday, but when I walk through the door and get ambushed by half the neighborhood in party hats, my face alights with happiness, and it's this face Mother misses most when I'm like this. Sometimes I feel okay for over a month, I belong to my school's cloud watcher society, and on a nice day I'll sit atop the hill on Reservoir Park and record the shapes of the cumulus. Castle. Grandpa. Triceratops. Paraguay. I'm the top cloud watcher in our chapter, the only one who's seen every South American country and most of continental Europe, but when I'm like this, the clouds are just clouds, formless puffs of cotton. And I stop attending the meetings and spend all day in my room. The phone rings, and I note the society, wanting to tell me about some amazing formations over Vilas or Picnic Point, but I don't answer it. I just lie on my bed and wait for this feeling to pass. I don't know why it comes or goes, sometimes it's a summer thunderstorm angry black cumulonimbus dissolving within an hour, but other times, it's a winter-long gray hanging above my head for an entire, dismal season. When it's gray for a long time, my mother spices up the birthday parties and gets a clown, or a pinata, or a bunt cake for variety, but eventually, the neighborhood kids refuse her invitations and the church women fabricate prior engagements. And it is just Mother who hides behind her furniture, greeting me with a surprise and a noisemaker. She does her best to smile, claps as I unwrap the appliances, and sings a spirited, operatic happy birthday. But when I blow out the candles and she says, don't forget to make a wish, I can tell by the way her voice quavers and cracks that she's trying hard not to cry. On the good days, I maintain a detailed cloud diary. I write down the date, time of the day, temperature and barometric pressure, and sketch the cloud's contours with quick expert strokes. Altacumulus look like herds of sheep, cirrus like wisps of con candy, but cumulus can look like anything, a pet you had, a girl you like, a place you want to go. My first South American country was Argentina, and I initially thought it was a half-eaten ice cream cone. During meetings of the Cloud Watcher Society, we trade notebooks and discuss each other's sketches. Is that a dinosaur? Is that an elephant with antlers? And occasionally give poster presentations. There's a Q&A and a reading of the minutes, and a table with soda and coffee cake. When I saw my final South American country, Bolivia, the society threw a big party, and I was given a bronze plaque. Always keep your head in the clouds, it said. Watcher of the year, 2004. On the bad days, I bury the plaque beneath piles of clothes, but on the good days, it sits proudly on my dresser. When I'm like this, I can't even look at my notebook. I stick it in a drawer and wander through my school day, directionless and zombie-like, until I return home and lie in my bed. I appear listless and apathetic, but what I really am is scared, scared that I'll feel this way forever, that I'll walk outside and only see clouds, slabs of gray, towers of black, wisps and blobs, of white. Even with my mother surprising me and singing in falsetto and wrapping our toaster in newsprint, Fear is always there, hovering formidably overhead, seemingly endless in its depth and breadth, indestructible. And yet, every time, by some unknown magic, the fear gradually melts away into nothing, and the clouds are no longer clouds but majestic ships and faraway planets and wild animals flying through the peaceful sky. If I could control the clouds, I would only see them in this way, ambassadors from unknown lands hovering thousands of feet above my head. But I control nothing. I'm subject to the whims of untamable weather systems, and the darkness can descend at any moment. But if I could train myself to believe in the sky's inevitable rebirth, maybe I could finally weather the storms, If I could force myself to revisit the contours I've captured, I might understand that one day they will return. When I'm like this, it's hard to believe that such a thing is even possible. A new sky, unrecognizable from the one before, waiting to be discovered as I step into the warmth of the sun. But even without hope, the sky does reveal itself, and my life, once again, takes shape.